Nephite and Lamanite societies conflict, reconcile, merge, and divide again in just a few short years as the appearance of an ancient evil takes them from the height of righteousness to the depths of depravity. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome again to Gospel Doctrine, your Come Follow Me podcast. Today's lesson, Helaman chapters 1 through 6, the rock of our Redeemer. And as sort of a lead-in to today's discussion, I wanted to mention something we talked about last time, and that was the battle that Moroni had with his own people. You remember that as Moroni was fighting the Lamanites, he noticed that they had a surprising lack of strength. The support that he expected to come from the land of Zarahemla was absent, and as a result, they lost an important military battle. And so Moroni, he embarked on a campaign to recruit, to revivify the efforts of the Nephites in their battle against the Lamanites, and he actually had to take his forces from the front lines of the war that they were conducting and march all the way to Zarahemla and fight against his own people. And I said in that lesson, I said, Basically, Moroni would never give up. He was always going to fight. Even when Pahoran, the who should have been the one leading everyone, he was the chief judge, even when Pahoran was willing to give up and say, he said to Moroni, I wasn't sure if it was right that we should fight, that we should spill the blood of our brethren over our freedoms. And Moroni said, no, freedom trumps everything. We are going to fight. And I wanted to say a little bit more about what it means in today's world to fight. Now, obviously, uh, hopefully, at least, in your civilization, I I know in mine, in in the United States, we're not called upon to engage in violence. And I don't even think we're called upon to engage in harsh speech. I want to give a perfect example of what it means to fight in today's world. Now, on June 17th, Elder David A. Bednar spoke at a a group, a gathering called the Religious Freedom Annual Review. And I'm going to quote from some of the things he said in his talk at that gathering. Elder Bednar pointed out, in North America, jurisdictions deemed services related to alcohol, animals, and marijuana as essential, while the services of religious organizations were classified as non-essential, even when those activities could be safely conducted. He cited examples in one state where Catholic priests were barred from anointing a parishioner with holy oil in the performance of last rites, even if that person did not have COVID-19. In the same state, Latter-day Saints were not allowed to perform baptisms. The power of government must have limits, asserted Elder Bednar. The time of restriction and confinement has confirmed for me that no freedom is more important than religious freedom. Protecting a person's physical health from the coronavirus is, of course, important, but so is a person's spiritual health. While believers and their religious organizations must be good citizens in a time of crisis, never again can we allow government officials to treat the exercise of religion as simply non-essential. Never again must the fundamental right to worship God be trivialized below the ability to buy gasoline. Now, you'll notice a couple of things in here. Number one, he is talking about religious freedom. This is, this is very reminiscent of the standard of liberty. This reminds me of Moroni's march to Zarahemla. When he raised the standard of liberty everywhere he could go, they'd suffered a defeat. And he was reminding everyone that they cared about the religious freedom above all things. Secondly, he says the power of government must have limits. And for me, this reminds me of Moroni's statement that I seek not for power but to pull it down. Now, there's nothing in Elder Bednar's speech that would hurt anyone's feelings. He's stating facts, and then he states his opinion that religious freedom is extremely important. I get almost emotional talking about this because this is a modern-day Moroni who's raising the standard of liberty for all of us to see. And incidentally, he is an apostle, and this is sort of a political statement, right? He's talking about the actions of government. And in case you're one of those people who thinks that the prophet and the apostles have no place inserting themselves into a political discussion. In today's lesson, we're going to discuss yet another prophet who is the chief judge, or basically the president, the king, the leader of his country's government. That brings us to the beginning of our lesson. So the book of Alma ends when Helaman, the son of Alma, dies, Moroni dies, and these great towering figures 
have now left to their heirs to carry on the work that they began. And so Helaman, the son of Helaman, we'll call him Helaman the second, even though there is another. <laughs> the, the Book of Mormon sometimes gets a little confusing with names. There is another minor Helaman earlier in the Book of Mormon, but we never even mentioned him. And so Helaman the second takes over the leadership of the church. And Pahoran the second, the son of the, the grandson of one of the first chief judges, Nephiha, and then his son Pahoran, and now Pahoran the second, is elected the chief judge. So our story begins in this time of succession, and there is a bitterly contested election, and Pahoran II is elected, but he has two brothers, Panchi and Pacumeni. So Panchi is the one who is the most bitter. Pacumeni accepts the verdict, uh, the voice of the people, and he supports his brother Pahoran II, who has won the election. He'll be the chief judge. But Panchi, on the other hand, he leads a group who want to establish, again, this. they're called kingmen at various points in the Book of Alma. They want to establish, reestablish a monarchy. So it, despite the fact that the Nephites have moved into a representative form of government, something that is based on choice and laws rather than on royal succession, there seems to be a powerful sentiment that keeps running through the people that draws them back towards monarchy, and especially because there are a number of minor functionaries in the government who want more power. And so generally what will happen is one of these charismatic figures rises to some prominence and then flatters the people, these these minor functionaries, that they can be raised up to higher positions of power if they'll just support his role, his bid for the kingship. This happens over and over again, and it always leads to violence. Thankfully, Panchi is caught before this gets that far, and he's condemned to die. We're not told that he actually is executed, but he's not mentioned further. So we can presume when they say he's condemned to die that he's actually executed. And when that happens, his followers are angry. It says they were angry, and then Pahoran, the one who put his brother to death, I mean, he, he couldn't show favoritism towards his own brother. He had to execute him according to the law. And therefore, Pahoran is assassinated while he sits on the judgment seat. And we don't know whether that means uh, while he held the office or physically he's in the judgment seat and he's actually publicly holding uh, court and he's killed right in front of people. We don't know which of the two that means. So it could be literal or figurative. But in either case, this was interesting to me because here we have two brothers who are both executed according to different set of codes. One of them is a legal code, and one of them is an extra-legal code. I'm going to say more about that. But first, I want to hearken back to earlier this year, in First Nephi chapter 8, when we discussed Lehi's dream. If you remember, if you, if you heard that lesson, you'll remember I talked about two competing narratives. And the one narrative given by Lehi's dream is of a world in which so all blessings, salvation, the fruit of the tree of life, whatever it represents, the love of God, the escape from this waste of darkness, the, the mist and the trackless waste, all of these blessings, they come from God. They're available to everyone who chooses them. And Satan, the enemy of God, motivates people to leave those blessings behind and enter into this great and spacious building and to oppose or mock anyone who is anyone else who's arriving at the tree. So this is one narrative in which God is in control and anyone can arrive at his feet and partake of the blessings that he has to share with people. But I proposed at the time a competing narrative. So the narrative that the Lamanites uh, adopted, I characterized by the analogy of an infinite chessboard. And basically the way they see the world is as a zero-sum game, and we've seen several manifestations of this with each Antichrist that comes to preach to the Nephites and try to get them to abandon the faith of God, we have another example of this competing narrative. And what, it mean, what, what I mean by an infinite chessboard is it's a game where for someone else to win, it means I have to lose. If you've, if you've ever heard the phrase, a zero-sum game, what it means is a negative for me, a positive for me equals a negative for you. And that's the opposite of the narrative in which everyone can arrive at the tree and partake of the, of the blessings of salvation, of the blessings of eternity. God has enough to share, and there is abundant supply of all of God's goodness to share among everyone. So the, the idea of the infinite chessboard is that we have to prosper. And if you'll forgive me for indulging in some nerdiness from my computer science days, 
Chess is what they call a perfect information game. And what that means is it's not like cards where I can hold my cards against my chest and hide them from you if you're playing against me. Everyone can see the chessboard. And so there are no secrets allowed in the game. And the only way to be to win at chess is to be better, to be smarter than your opponent. And this perfectly lines up with what Korahor said. He said, we all prosper according to our genius, and we have to conquer according to our strength. We have to get ahead. And us getting ahead, if it involves other people suffering, then that's because they didn't have as much strength or as much genius as we did. And so we have to prevent their gain from becoming our loss by being selfish creatures. And this is the justification, this is the worldview that allows people to be completely selfish. And in fact, it is the inevitable result of adopting that narrative. So we have these two competing narratives. Now, centuries later, these two narratives have finally reached the inevitable culmination of the respective worldviews that they espouse. So those who were willing to accept Lehi's view of the world know that God, number one, God has secrets from us. We can't see everything that will come. We have to act in faith as Alma taught, as Nephi taught, as King Benjamin taught, as so many of the prophets taught. We have to accept some things on faith and know that we can't know everything, especially about what is to come in the world after we die. However, once we accept that, we have the good news that God has made salvation freely available to all. And against that worldview is pitted the idea that what we see is everything that there is, and we all have to grab what's ours and get out before, while the getting's good, before the supplies run out. And so that is the motivating philosophy behind this band that will be called the Gadianton Robbers, or the band of Gadianton's Band of Robbers and Murderers. They're no longer content, as was Sherem, as was Nehor, as was Korahor, to preach the, the beliefs that they have taken upon themselves and to try to get other people to be selfish like they are and to agree with them that selfishness is the best way. Now what they want is the power over the entire government so that they can direct the lives of every person by force, because that's what government is, right? It's the legal use of force. And so they want to be in charge of that force and direct the lives of every single person. And if you if that plan sounds familiar to you, it's because it is an exact restatement of what Satan's plan was. Satan wanted more power, not because his ideas were better, but simply because he wanted the enjoyment of the power. So King Mosiah, Mosiah, when he instituted the reign of the judges, he created a set of laws. We learn about that here in the book, the first chapters of the book of Helaman. We learn that not only did Mosiah establish a way of electing judges, but he also had an entire code of laws that we don't know much more about. And in those laws is codified the idea that freedom is good, that people, there are enough blessings for everyone to partake of them. If they will abide by the laws of God and by the laws of Mosiah, then there is enough and for all. There's abundant blessings for every person. And those are the laws that put Panchi to death. On the other hand, we have the codes, if you will, the, the worldview espoused by Gadianton and his band uh, in the person of uh, an assassin named Kishkumen. And these are the laws which put Pahoran to death, under which Pahoran was executed or assassinated. And when they assassinated him, they decided among themselves, he's in our way. That is all the justification that they needed. That is the law of Satan. So the laws of God put Panchi to death. The law of Satan put Pahoran to death. And those two laws now are in direct conflict. They're in violent conflict for several chapters. And because of this conflict, we have right in the first chapter of Helaman, things get going fast and the action doesn't stop. Uh, the Lamanites, they charge right into the middle of the country. If you think of the land of the Nephites, we're going to talk a little bit about geography today, but if you think of the land of the Nephites as being in two parts, and no one knows exactly what their map looked like because there was so many earthquakes around the time of the death of Jesus Christ, the Nephites had a land northward and a land southward, and they were joined by a narrow neck of land, and the Neph a Nephite could make a one-day journey from the sea west to the sea east. So a lot of people think that this was Panama, or whatever landmass was closest to Panama before the earthquakes and destruction. So that's the Nephite land. It's divided into two parts. The southern part is vulnerable because it is abutting the land of Nephi, where the Lamanites live. 
and the Lamanites charge up right into the middle of the land southward where Zarahemla is, and they're surrounded on, on most of the borders, the sea west, the sea east, and of, of all across the south. They're surrounded by these four fortified border towns. But the Lamanites, rather than engage in those fortifications as they've done in the past, they charge right between them and go right to the land of Zarahemla, and they kill Pacumeni, the third brother who took over after his two, other two brothers were killed. And the leader of the, this Lamanite army is Coriantumr, and he kills Pacumeni by slamming him against the walls of the city. It's quite dramatic. A couple of observations. Number one, Coriantumr is a name that comes from the Jaredites. If you remember, or if you've, if you've read the Book of Mormon in the past, Coriantumr is the last surviving Jaredite. There's a huge battle, and every single Jaredite in the entire nation is killed, and Coriantumr is the sole survivor. But he's, so he's obviously a mighty warrior, but he was one of the leaders of Jaredite society before the war. And this reminded me of other Jaredite names that have been used by the Nephites. Korahor is actually the name of a person who lived in the land of Nehor. And both of those, uh, bo- both of those names were from people who were rebels. Uh, you can find them in Ether ch- chapter 7 if you want to look up wh- where they come from. And my suspicion is that these names were chosen purposely, deliberately, once these men reached adulthood, they wanted to be associated with the corresponding ideas from the plates of the Jaredites. They didn't have the book of, of Ether as we have it today. What they had were these 24 plates that had been translated by Mosiah. So they had a much more complete record of the Jaredites. And so they probably knew a lot more about the man Korahor, the place of Nehor, and Coriantumr. And the, they, these were probably legendary figures among the Nephites, and so they wanted, and the Lamanites, and so they wanted to uh, take on some aspect or some perception of these legendary figures from the Jaredites. And that's important because the very idea of having a secret band of murderers that would kill people to get gain and take control of the government, it seems to have come from these 24 Jaredite plates. Alma, he warned his son Helaman that a lot of the details of how this sort of oath, this sort of secret society was administered, that should be kept secret. Uh, but what the book of Helaman tells us is that they, they didn't need to learn the details from the Jaredite plates because Satan himself could reveal it. Once their hearts were wicked enough, then they could listen to Satan to the extent where they could have these things revealed to them. And they probably just thought, hey, this is a great idea. Let's do things this way. But it's actually Satan whis- whispering in their ear, you know, that little devil and the angel on one shoulder and the other. Uh, once you've listened to that devil enough, he can start getting more and more specific about what he wants you to do. Uh, and anyway, that's not part of the scriptures, but... Uh, So they got to the point where they could reconstruct these ancient wicked societies, this ancient evil of secret combinations, as they're called in the Book of Mormon. They prove the downfall as Moroni has, or I'm sorry, as Mormon has already foreshadowed. They prove the downfall of the entire people of Nephi. At the very end of the Book of Mormon, they will destroy the entire civilization that gave birth to them. So right away here in chapter one, we have three brothers, and they all three die in three different violent ways. The first Pahoran is killed by the Gadiantans. He's righteous, but he's not wise enough to the dangers that Satan poses to a righteous people. The second brother, Panchi, he's killed by the Nephites. His death symbolizes how Satan will ultimately desert those who follow him. And finally, Pacumeni, he's killed by the Lamanites. He's righteous, but he wasn't vigilant enough to maintain the armies along the southern border to keep the Lamanites from invading the center of the country. Now, the the Lamanites are victorious for a season, but really, to me, this army of invading Lamanites, they resemble nothing more than a teenager going for a joyride. They're going to do a lot of damage, but they're not really getting anywhere worth going because this Lamanite army is now totally cut off from supplies and from any sort of reinforcement. They're in the middle of... Nephite territory, and there is no other possible outcome than that they're going to be surrounded and defeated. Uh, in this battle, and that is what happens, and in this battle, Moronihah proves himself to be merciful like his father. He, he causes them to enter into an oath of peace and then exiles them from Nephite lands rather than putting them all to death. 
In chapter 2 is where things get real because now Helaman, the prophet, takes over as chief judge because all three, the, all three of the sons of Pahoran who wanted the job are dead. Now you can imagine that this is not the kind of job that uh, there's a lot of contention for at this point. Uh, chief judge has been revealed to be the kind of position that has a very high occupational hazard. But Helaman II, he has enough courage to take it on. And sure enough, again, the Gadiantans send Kishkumen to murder him while he's sitting on his judgment seat. But I don't know whether it was through the planning and foresight of Helaman or whether his servant or his friend was the one with the vigilance to keep him safe. But he actually becomes aware of the plot before Helaman is killed. And he is able to intercept and kill Kishkumen instead. Now the band gets away, but that's chapter two. One of the questions that came up for me in this chapter is, how did Mormon become aware of the inner workings of the Gadiantans? He seems to know what they're talking about when they meet secretly. And he tells us the story of how they sent Kishkumen. A Gadiant was the leader, and he promised all of his followers that he would give them positions in the government if he became the chief judge. And then he, he also, Mormon also knew somehow that they departed out of a secret way and left the country behind and went into hiding uh, after, Kish, after they discovered that Kishkumen wasn't coming back from killing Helaman. All of those things would presumably have been secret details, and somehow Mormon became aware of them. Uh, it's interesting that they're in the book of Helaman as they are, and I actually think that this story would make a pretty good action movie. It sounds pretty exciting. First one man is killed, then he puts his brother to death, and then a third brother is killed in battle, and then someone else takes over, and he foils an assassination attempt. Uh, very exciting, very dramatic stuff going on. And Nephite society only gets more volatile from here on in. In chapter 3, we have an account of what I would call a second Nephite diaspora, which is where the, a scattering of the people into previously uninhabited areas of land. You'll, you'll remember that there was one episode of this already late in the Book of Alma, and here we have another huge colonization push early in the Book of Helaman. One, one interesting detail, in verse 7, it talks about how the Nephites who traveled a certain amount northward, they become expert in the working of cement, and they build their houses of cement because there is no timber to be found anywhere in the land. Now, just a few decades ago, there was actually a controversy about this uh, verse, this specific passage in the Book of Mormon, how it described the ancient Nephites as having an expertise in building homes out of cement. And a scholar by the name of John L. Smith, he wrote a book, and one of, the main, one of his main points was, I cannot believe the Book of Mormon. I cannot give it any credence because they have, it makes a claim that is so demonstrably false that there was an ancient people in the Americas who knew about the workings of cement. All of our archaeological evidence points to the fact that none of those people knew anything about cement. And this was a commonly accepted view of the, the state of archaeology, the state of ancient technology. And you can find an expert of, uh, I'm sorry, an excerpt of that uh, under the title, What About Those Gold Plates? This is from 1986. But apparently what Mr. Smith was unaware of was that uh, over 15 years before, a scholar by the name of David Hyman had written a little-known study about how expert the pre-Columbian Mesoamericans were in building houses and other buildings out of cement. The evidence was there, it just had not been discovered and had not been made known to this scholar. And he decided, based on this and a few other factors, he decided because the Book of Mormon got this wrong, that he could not believe it. I bring this up to point out that there are a number of things that might make us wonder, that even might bring us to doubt about the veracity of the Book of Mormon. Why is it, for example, that the, uh, a society that is supposedly descended from uh, an ancient Israelite offshoot would not have the wheel and axle among their technological artifacts in the archaeological record? Why is it that we can't find mitochondrial DNA that would tie the ancient American skeletal remains that we find to a common ancestor that is roughly 2,600 years old rather than several thousand years old? And so those are some evidences that might make you think, okay, that the Book of Mormon has not been supported by facts in those areas. And here is a perfect example of a man who decided, based on that, that the Book of Mormon cannot be true, 
because the facts that I know about have not vindicated it. And then later on it came out that, in fact, the facts do very much vindicate the Book of Mormon account in a way that Joseph Smith could not possibly have been aware of. And my point in saying all of this is to, is to reiterate the point that Mike Madsen made in our recent special episode. The point of scientific and scholarly argument is not to prove that the Book of Mormon is true. And uh, by the same token, scientific argument will never be able to prove that it's not true. Uh, it's almost impossible to prove a negative. And the Book of Mormon could be proven by science if we found an, an ancient record or an ancient indication that the Nephites lived in a certain place, for example. But in the absence of such an indisputable find, the purpose of scientific and scholarly inquiry is to make it possible to believe, is to leave you in the realm of uncertainty where you get to choose. It's interesting to me that there are plenty of facts that fail to support the historicity or the historical account of the Book of Mormon, and there are myriad facts that tend in the exact opposite direction and cannot be explained unless the Book of Mormon is what it purports to be. And so we get to look at those facts and we get to think, okay, what do I believe? The Book of Mormon was never meant to be understood in a scientific way. It's meant to speak to our spirits first and to our brains second. It doesn't mean we shut our brains off. It means we, we listen spiritually before we listen mentally. Now, when you think of the name Helaman, the person you think of is the son of Alma, the one who led the 2,000 stripling warriors. Helaman II is not known for too many things, but he's basically known for being the chief judge over the Nephites in a time when they were in such tumult that their society was ripping itself apart. And in six years, he turned it around from a country full of discontent and wickedness. And uh, so in the 43rd year of the reign of the judges, he becomes chief judge. And in year 49, he finally establishes peace and righteousness. Helaman chapter 3 describes the church of God as adding tens of thousands of members through baptism and repentance. As we learn in uh, Helaman 3.26, I want to read from there, starting in verse 27. Thus we may see that the Lord is merciful unto all who will in the sincerity of their hearts call upon his holy name. Again, the idea that God has enough blessings for everyone is central to the message of freedom in the Book of Mormon. Verse 28, Yea, thus we see that the gate of heaven is open unto all, even to those who will believe on the name of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. And this is where I wanted to get. Verse 29, Yea, we see that whosoever will may lay up Hold upon the word of God, which is quick and powerful, which shall divide asunder all the cunning and the snares and the wiles of the devil, and lead the man of Christ in a straight and narrow course across that everlasting gulf of misery, which is prepared to engulf the wicked, and land their souls, yea, their immortal souls, at the right hand of God in the kingdom of heaven to sit down with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob and with all our holy fathers to go no more out." That's a powerful turn of phrase. I suspect that Helaman II wrote this. Mormon is actually abridging for now from the record of Helaman. And so this, this re resembles the teachings that Helaman gives his sons in chapter 5. So Helaman is known for two things. He's known for being this transformative chief judge, but also for giving his sons, naming his sons Nephi and Lehi, and then giving them such powerful teachings that they were be able to become world-altering missionaries. One more point from chapter 3, which is in verse 35, it describes that Around the time of the death of Helaman II, there were many, even members of the church, who were so lifted up in pride that they were persecuting those who were actually humble. And in verse 35, it describes them as waxing stronger and stronger in their humility. And we've talked about that idea before, that humility makes you strong. But I just wanted to read it again, because a lot of times, uh, and especially the, the ideas of Korahor, but a lot of times we think of strength as being physical strength, as being force of personality, the willingness to assert our ideas and impose them upon others. And here in the Book of Mormon, especially in, in the Book of Helaman, we have the idea that the way we become stronger and stronger is in humility. There is an entire lesson that I could do there on that, but I just want you to ponder what that might mean. What does it mean to wax stronger and stronger in humility? 
Now in chapter four, it starts right off with two dissenting groups from the Nephites going into the going unto the Lamanites and convincing them to once again make war uh, a war of aggression upon the Nephites. Now it's in, something that occurred to me as I was reading these chapters, and uh, it began in chapter one. the The king of the Lamanites, his name is Tubaloth. He's the son of Amaron, the last king that we remember reading about, who was killed by Teancum in his tent. So Tubaloth is the one who sent Coriantumr to invade the land of Zarahemla. And it's just interesting because we know that uh, Amaron was a Zoramite. He was one of the Nephite dissenters. Tubaloth also now is a Zoramite. And the whole complaint of the Lamanites is that their ancestor Laman was deprived of rule by uh, the Nephite's ancestor Nephi. And yet, the the modern-day Lamanites, modern to, to this time period... The modern-day Lamanites are allowing themselves to be ruled over by a Zoramite. So they are complaining about the fact that they've lost the rule, and they are going to battle to shed blood in their anger over that state of affairs, led by a man who's from one of the tribes of the people who supposedly victimized them. So this shows you the lie in their philosophy. Why would they submit themselves to the rule of a Zoramite when they're so angry with the rule being taken from the house of Laman in the first place. It tells you that not only was their complaint a false one, but that any thinking person among the Lamanites had to know that their complaint was a false one. And so not only were they wrong, but they were also lying. In any case, Mormon describes Nephite society as being so wicked by this point that they were defenseless against this new invading army of Lamanites, and they're pushed all the way back. Now, we talked earlier about the fact that Nephite land is divided into the land northward and the land southward, connected by this narrow neck of land. The Nephites are pushed all the way up into the land northward. The only way they're able to defend themselves is because they have such a narrow neck of land to fortify. And the Lamanites, on the other hand, not only do they still control the land of Nephi, but now they control the entire land southward that was formerly Nephite land. And Moronihah is able to Uh, Over the next year or so, he's able to gain back half of it. So now we have the land of Nephi, which belongs entirely to the Lamanites and always has. We have the land northward, which is in Nephite hands. And then we have this contested land southward, which now belongs half to the Nephites and half to the Lamanites. The city of Zarahemla is within Lamanite territory. Now, I want to read you verse 12 from chapter 4, because this is where Mormon gives the justification or the reasoning why the Nephites were able to be conquered so easily. Verse 12 in uh, Helaman 4, It was because of the pride of their hearts, because of their exceeding riches, yea, it was because of their oppression to the poor, withholding their food from the hungry, withholding their clothing from the naked, and smiting their humble brethren upon the cheek, making a mock of that which was sacred, denying the spirit of prophecy and of revelation, murdering, plundering, lying, stealing, committing adultery, rising up in great contentions, and deserting away into the land of Nephi among the Lamanites. So these are the reasons that Moroni lists for the weakness, the relative weakness of the Nephites to how they used to be. I wanted to mention that Old Testament Israelites were condemned by their prophets, the prophets that we read in the Bible, for these exact same reasons, for their lack of what is called Kedushah and Tzedakah, which is holiness and righteousness. Now, holiness means that you're separated from the world. You create a place where God can exist, and it's, a, it's set apart, and it's above. So that was the purpose of the veil of the temple. That was the purpose of the outer court of the temple, was to separate. The, the purpose of ritual purity was to separate your pure life, your temple worship, from your daily life. There should be a separation from the things of God and the things of man. So holiness, kedushah, and tzedakah, which is righteousness. Now that is fairness, generosity, and right relationships of men uh, and women one with another. When the prophet Jeremiah prophesied that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed, he was saying, you're not treating each other the way that God wanted you to treat each other. The poor are being mistreated. There is no justice. The courts have become corrupt. The law doesn't mean anything anymore. And you also are taking this temple, this holy temple, and making it a place of profanity. And because of these two things, God will destroy you. And this is exactly the reasons that Mormon gives for the destruction of the Nephites. It's a powerful yet very subtle biblical parallel. 
And if you remember early in Nephite history, Lehi prophesied that the descendants of Laman would serve as a reminder to the Nephites of their dependence upon God. They would stir them up in remembrance by coming against them with violence. And this is exactly what happens here in chapter 4. In verse 20 and 21, the Nephites, because they are fearing for their very survival and they recognize how weak they've become, they begin to remember God and the teachings of the prophets. So now in uh, the, chapter 5 now is really the centerpiece of this whole lesson. Like Alma the Younger, Nephi, the son of Helaman II, he leaves the judgment seat. He took over after his father Helaman II died. He leaves the judgment seat to be a prophet and a missionary. So he and his brother Lehi, now they take their opportunity to record some of the teachings they got from their father. But I want to remind you that here's a prophet of God, and he doesn't feel like it's incumbent upon him because he's a prophet. He has to stay out of politics. He led, he and his father before him, they led not only the church, but the government as well. Now, I'm not saying that's the way it should be. I'm saying that when the prophet chooses to involve himself in politics, it is incumbent upon us to listen rather than become prideful and think it's not his place. We need to recognize that the spiritual aspects of God's will and God's law have a lot of overlap in political arenas on the earth. That's just the way that it is. In our own time, President Ezra Taft Benson was once a cabinet minister. In the United States government, he was Secretary of Agriculture, and he had a lot of political things to say during the years when he was an apostle. So that brings us to the teachings of Helaman II to his sons. He says to them, first of all in verse 6, Remember those whom you're named after, Nephi and Lehi. I gave you these names so that you could remember our fathers of old and remember the things that were said about them and the actions that they performed, that they were good. And I gave you this good history. I gave you this good remembrance so that you would also choose to be good. It's important to me that you, my sons, you lay up treasures in heaven rather than try to amass earthly wealth or earthly power or or any sort of earthly reputation. I want you to put your heart and your treasure in heaven. There's no other way to salvation except by Christ. And here he is echoing this. These are verses 9. Now we're in verses 9 through 11. He's echoing King Benjamin and he's echoing Alma, these recent prophets who have said very clearly that the only way to salvation is by Christ alone. There is no other name given by which salvation can come. You remember I gave an extended analogy about how we know that from those those lessons. So he is making it very explicitly clear that Christ is the sole source for us to reach salvation. And when he saves us, he doesn't save us in our sins. He saves us from our sins. He makes that important teaching of Amulek even more abundantly clear. Now that brings us to verse 12, which is one of the most famous verses in the Book of Mormon. And now, my sons, remember, remember that it is upon the rock of our Redeemer, who is Christ, the Son of God, that you must build your foundation. So in other words, there is no. he's reiterating the teaching that there is no other name given by which we can be saved. It is upon this rock that you must build your foundation, that when the devil shall send forth his mighty winds, yea, his shafts in the whirlwind, yea, when all his hail and his mighty storm shall beat upon you, it shall have no power over you to drag you down to the gulf of misery and endless woe because of the rock upon which ye are built, which is a sure foundation, a foundation whereon if men build, they cannot fall. Now, reading this verse is powerful, but reading in context is even more powerful because we have a recent example of all of the hail and the mighty storm that has beaten upon the Nephite society and Nephi and Lehi specifically. They have been, their entire civilization has been displaced and almost wiped out because of their wickedness. And as we're about to see when they become missionaries, so this teaching here is sandwiched between two immense trials that these men undergo. One is the near destruction of Nephite society, and the other is them being imprisoned and mistreated and beaten and mocked and starved when they go as missionaries among the Lamanites. So we'll read about, we'll we'll hear about that in just a minute. And the other point I wanted to make is, so verse 12 is really about Helaman teaching his sons, number one, that Christ is the unique method of salvation. And number two, it's not just that following Christ will lead us to the right destination. Christ will also help us along the journey. So he helps us 
orient ourselves so that we have the right direction in life, but he also helps us as we take each step. He is providing us protection and support and blessings along the way for all of the the terrible events that Satan can throw into our path. Christ provides the answer to all of it. Now, chapter 5 is just getting started, and I don't know if there's a more powerful missionary chapter except those chapters where Christ himself is teaching the Nephites in all the Book of Mormon. This is a powerful chapter because what happens first is that Nephi and Lehi, they travel through the former Nephite lands, these contested lands, the lands southward, including the city of Zarahemla. And they preach with such power that most of the Lamanites in those areas are converted. And if you remember, these Lamanites, quote-unquote, are mostly comprised of former Nephites who hate the Nephites so much that they were willing to go into unto the Lamanites, convince the Lamanites to hate the Nephites as well, and then go kill them. And then they're also, they have this, they've got to have this guilt and self-loathing over this terrible thing that they've done. And yet they're willing to forgive themselves, they're willing to forgive the Nephites, they're willing to come back to Christ because of the powerful teachings of Nephi and Lehi. I can't imagine what it would have been like to listen to them. They weren't talking to willing or even apathetic audiences. They were talking to extremely hostile audiences to the point of violence and murder. And yet they were able to convert that kind of audience unto the truth and belief in Christ. And when they're done in these contested lands, then they go down into the land of Nephi, where the Lamanites have historically lived, and they're imprisoned in the very prison that the sons of Mosiah were imprisoned. And there they are mistreated to such an extent that they were about to be executed. And on that day, now understand, they'd been many days in prison, and God waited until the day when they were going to be executed to do this. And so they did suffer uh, Satan's mighty winds and storms, his shafts in the whirlwind, right? It wasn't that they were imprisoned and then God immediately showed himself. They had to be faithful in prison for many days, but on the day they were going to be executed, then they're encircled by a ring of fire, and the not only they, but their guards and the wicked Lamanites who were imprisoning them, they all experienced this mighty vision. The details of the vision are that the earth is shaking and that they all hear this powerful yet sweet voice telling them that they need to believe in Christ. The point I want to make about this experience is that the, there was nothing special about these Lamanite guards. We Often we read the scriptures and we think, if only I could have had this kind of experience, if only I could have seen an angel, I wish that I could be a prophet like Nephi, I wish that I could receive revelation like Alma and have an angel tell me about what happens between death and the resurrection. I wish, I wish, I wish. And I think sometimes the, the natural conclusion is there must be something wrong with me that I am not having these experiences that I read about in the scriptures. And I think it's important to understand that these really are exceptional experiences. They are not the rule. There was nothing special about these Lamanite guards. It just so happened that it fit God's purposes to give them this experience. The, their conversion here depends far more upon God than it does upon them. God was the agent of their change. And it even mentions the main guard who prompts all the other guards to change their ways and to to look and to have faith, to look at Nephi and Lehi and pray into the voice that is speaking in their hearts. He was a former dissenter from the Nephites. And in fact, he says, we need to believe in Christ as was taught to us by Alma and by Amulek and by Zeezrom. Now that tells me that this man was a Zoramite and he was one of these followers of the religion of the Ramiumtum. So he was a believer in Christ, and he may have been converted at the time they preached to the Zoramites and dissented later, or maybe he was a a follower of Christ before the Zoramites dissented. In any case, that was 40 years before. He's been wicked for 40 years, and then he he happens to be present and have the knowledge and experience to tell everyone, listen, this is how you believe in Christ. This is how you get God to listen to you, is you turn around, you have faith, you're willing to look. And everyone, 300 guards, go from being would-be murderers to being powerful missionaries. And they convert the entire land of Nephi. They convert the entire land southward that, that belonged to the Nephites to the point where Nephite and Lamanite society becomes joined. This happens in such a short time. 
And I want you to experience the the intentional, I believe, arrangement of the details of this story, of the events of this narrative, because it seems like Mormon has put, he's placed these in close proximity to each other so that we can see. First of all, Nephite society is destroyed. Then, Helaman teaches his sons. Then, they, they once again undergo this terrible ordeal. And finally, Nephite society is brought to a new height of peace and spirituality and prosperity. And so the central aspect of, the, of those three events is that Helaman teaches his sons. Remember, this isn't chronological order. The, the sons are remembering the earlier teachers. So Mormon has put deliberately, he's inserted these teachings in between the two events of destruction so that we can understand that this is what makes the change. It's that when we use the rock of Christ, our Redeemer, as our foundation, then the shafts in the whirlwind will have no effect upon us. So when they didn't use Christ as their foundation, Nephites were destroyed. Nephi and Lehi, on the other hand, because they had Christ as their foundation, it doesn't mean that they suffered less. It means that they were able to withstand every difficulty. Now, this gets even more powerful when we realize that the Nephites had the military might to repel any invasion of the Lamanites if they had been vigilant. But what might, what sort of strength did Nephi and Lehi have against the entire nation? They weren't just outnumbered. They were surrounded. They were alone in an entire nation of Lamanites, and yet they withstood all of it because they had the power of Christ. Whereas the entire Nephite nation before, given all their fortifications and all of their armor and all of their technological innovations, everything like of this nature... They couldn't stand against the Lamanites because they were built on a shaky foundation. So this is Mormon using this technique of contrasting these two events and showing us that it is Christ that makes the difference. When we have difficulties in our lives, it is Christ that bridges the gap between defeat and victory. And from verse 49 to the end of the chapter, there are four verses there. It talks about how, once again, the cycle of the Book of Mormon is not just the pride cycle where Nephites become righteous and humble, and then they are blessed and prospered, they become prideful, and then they become wicked, and then they have to be punished and they become humble again. That's the pride cycle of the Book of Mormon, but there's also the missionary cycle of the Book of Mormon, and here we see it again in its most dramatic uh, manifestation yet, because 300 of these wicked, wicked, wicked Lamanites are instantly converted and then become the most powerful missionaries that we see evidence of anywhere in the entire Book of Mormon. This is Alma the Younger and the Sons of Mosiah times 300. And so this is evidence that one of the cycles of the Book of Mormon is that people are wicked. Then Christ changes them. They then share the joy that they have. And this helps other wicked people to convert unto Christ. And the, the cycle continues. The Book of Mormon is replete with evidence that people can change. So if you have... If you have doubts about your ability to actually change and become more like Christ, reading, pondering, and praying about the Book of Mormon is how you're going to convince yourself that it's possible. This book will help you believe that Christ can change your heart. Now, unfortunately, this piece is short-lived. There's When Nephi stepped down from the judgment seat, he left a man named Caesarum in charge. And in chapter 6, uh, after the, these Lamanite missionaries have created peace in all the land, Caesarum is killed on the judgment seat. Now, it seems like this alternate society, this secret society, this wicked Nephite society has been developing in parallel for some time because as soon as the chief judge is killed, this society almost flips overnight and the Nephites once again decide they want to be wicked rather than righteous. Now, this is not facilitated by the fact that they can't keep a man in the, in the government very long. They can't keep him safe. In fact, Caesarum's son, who's not even named because he's killed so quickly, is taken out as well in the same year. Gadianton society now takes root among the Nephites. The Lamanites originally have more of these Gadianton robbers among their number, but they are more vigilant and more dedicated to purging themselves of this terrible evil. And so the Lamanites totally eliminate the Gadianton robbers and murderers from their lands. But the Nephites don't do that sort of work. They don't make that sort of effort or have that as that sort of priority, and therefore they're taken over by it. 
Now, this is clear evidence from the spiritual history, from the sacred history of the Nephites, that it is not your lineage, it is not your tribe, it is not the, the righteousness of your ancestors, it is not your family history that determines what you will do. Those things can have a large influence, but here we have a very, very complete counterexample to the idea that your circumstances determine your destiny. Here we have the Lamanites totally embracing the narrative of the tree of life, the, the worldview that God can bless everyone if only we will preserve our own freedom, and the Nephites embracing the formerly Lamanite worldview, where life is an infinite chessboard, and we all have to gain at the expense of those around us. And we this is all this world, what we see is all there is, and we have to take what's ours. So the final message of this lesson is what it means to be ripe in iniquity. I've talked in the past about sins that exist in a society rather than individual sins. Some of those sins are a lack of justice, a lack of observance of the law, disregard and neglect of the poor, and no remorse for any of these things. And this means that a society is ripening in iniquity. And when they are ripening in iniquity, that means their destruction is imminent. When the Nephites were conquered by the Lamanites, they said to themselves, We brought this upon ourselves because we ignored the laws that Mosiah established among us. But now, when they're conquered by the Gadiantans, it comes from within, and therefore they have no such collective realization. So if you want to take one thing from this lesson, take this. Mormon is showing us very clearly the natural result of adopting one view one worldview over another, the worldview of the tree of life and the worldview of the infinite chessboard. And he wants us to get the message that if we will build upon Christ and accept that first worldview, that not only are we heading in the right direction, but we, we will be helped along our way. And if we refuse to build upon the foundation of Christ, it is not he that will abandon us, but it is we who are abandoning him. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.